Good morning, and welcome to Chanel. Uh, we are so excited that you're here with us this morning. Uh, we think Chanel is a great place, and we're glad that you are here. We're going to be in Luke chapter 8, if you want to go ahead and turn there. We'll get to that in just a moment. Um, but before we do, let's go to the Father in prayer. Heavenly Father, God, we, we love you. God, we thank you for who you are and who you created us to be. Uh, we thank you for this opportunity to, to come together, Lord, to sing praises to you, to share in communion, God, and, and now to turn our attention to Scripture. God, we ask that you allow this text that we're looking at this morning to resonate on our hearts and speak through it, God. This is your son that we pray. Amen. So I've always hated storms. When I was about eight or nine years old, a tornado came through my hometown in western Kentucky, and I can still remember like the chaos of that night of how afraid everyone in our family was, about how the emergency services were stretched. I mean, it was a small town, but you know, when trees start falling and houses start getting destroyed, like, it's scary for anybody. But as an eight- or nine-year-old, like, that sat with me, like, even to this day. When we purchased our home on Echo Valley, we inherited three dead pine trees. And, and those pine trees, they move so much, you could call it choreography at Harding, when the wind is coming through. Some of you, that's a joke for some of you, not for everybody. But every storm that came through, I would stand, I'd do that dad thing where I go out to our backyard and I just kind of put my hands on my hip and I watch those trees, kind of daring them to fall in our house. But I've always hated storms. I don't like them for a lot of different reasons, but one of the main reasons why I struggle with storms is that sometimes they just, they come out of nowhere. Years ago, I was taking a group of teens from Kentucky to Moralton. We are going to work at the Southern Christian Home here in Moralton. And my, my co-pilot was a, a kid named Tyler. Tyler is a wonderful kid, but he talks. That trip from Madisonville to Moralton was about nine and a half hours, and Tyler talked for about eight and a half of them. It was a, a rough trip. And there was a part to where I could finally see the end of it when we got onto I-40. But if you've been on I-40, you start seeing those signs that say, are you prepared to meet God? I don't think that's about like where you're going to spend eternity, more of just like the experience you're going to have on I-40. Like, are you ready for this? Buckle up. But we get on I-40, and, and I've just, it's like Charlie Brown's teacher. Like, he's just like, want, want, want the whole time. And I'm just gripping the steering wheel, just like, get me to Moralton. And he's, he's just talking, talking, yapping. And I'm like, yeah, you're right, Tyler. Absolutely, buddy. Like, yeah, that's cool. And I'm ignoring everything he's saying. Because it's like I've heard about seven hours of this already. And then I hear a kid in the back go, yeah, Tyler is right. Those clouds are getting pretty dark. Now, we're in a 15-passenger van, which is the safest thing to be in on I-40 in a storm that's developing rapidly. But I remember as Tyler is telling me that this storm is developing, quickly seeing how fast the clouds were changing colors. And you could start to feel the wind push that 15-passenger van a little bit. And I quickly found safe haven at the Brinkley McDonald's. This is the last time that I can say I felt safe in that establishment. But I tell that story because sometimes storms develop out of nowhere. And there's two things that I didn't learn in seminary, and it was meteorology and math. Those two things, they, they overlooked it in seminary. And so if there was only an individual who was maybe brave enough or, or courageous enough to share a little bit about storms with us. And I don't know, Miles, do we have somebody that's going to be videoing in? Maybe? Hey, Bryce, meteorologist hey, Todd Jacoby, and I want to explain to you the generalities on how thunderstorms do develop. You need a collision of air masses, usually warm versus cold or dry versus humid. 
And uh, that's the warmth, the collision in air masses, the humidity. And all that kind of collides and you get these billowing clouds, these updrafts. And it forms a thunderstorm. If you get enough heat and instability at the surface, it'll form a thunderstorm with heavy rain, thunder, and lightning. So you need that collision in air masses. You need the moisture. And for tornadoes to occur, wind shear. Winds changing direction with height. And if that happens all within that thunderstorm, we can even get tornadoes to be produced. I want to thank you again for letting me do this and remind you that I will be on KARK Channel 4 starting March 4th at 4, 5, 6, and at 10 o'clock. Hope you have a great day. I want to thank Todd for doing that. He was gracious enough to give us a little bit of his time uh, to, to share a little bit of information about how thunderstorms develop. But when I reached out to him, I said, I, I really am interested in how these storms sometimes develop kind of like unexpectedly. We don't see them coming. Like it can be a sunny day like today, and then all of a sudden we have dark clouds and terrible skies. And so I'm, again, thankful to Todd for doing that. And again, don't forget to tune in to Channel 4 uh, starting March 4th. I told him I'd plug it as well. But, and that's what we're going to be talking about this morning, is storms. One of the more famous stories that involves a storm is found in Luke chapter 8. And that's where we'll be this morning. And our text begins with, One day, Jesus said to his followers, Let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. Now there is no hiding that Luke does not want to romanticize this journey. Uh, we've, we've talked about how Luke will use geographical changes to move Jesus from one place to another, and it's, it's very dry. This is just kind of how he writes. But Luke is setting up that, the disciple, that something is going to happen as the disciples travel. So again, they, they get into this boat to go to the other side of the lake. Now this was very common, a common form of transportation to get from one side to the other. They would get into a boat that looked like this. Um, it, it was going to be a smaller vessel, nothing like kind of what we see today. But they would have gotten a boat about this size uh, to travel across the, the Sea of Galilee here. Uh, it, it's going to be tight if you're going to be riding in something like this. There's not going to be a lot of room, which is why it's going to seem kind of weird when we look at that next passage and we see what one individual in the story is doing. So the text continues in verse 23. As they sailed, he, being Jesus, fell asleep. So back to this picture one last time. This is the boat that we're all traveling in. Jesus is asleep in this boat. Uh, he's on the stern, likely, but Jesus falls asleep, and a squall came down on the lake. So the, the boat was being swamped, and they were in great danger. Now, again, we know, because we're reading the text, that Jesus falls asleep. And we may think that that's a weird thing to do. But it's actually not uncommon for Jesus to fall asleep or to even feel fatigue. We see this all throughout the Gospels, where after Jesus spends an exorbitant amount of time either teaching, uh, preaching, visiting with people, healing people, that he needs rest. It's kind of this like moment where we see a little bit of humanity along with the divinity of Jesus. But he falls asleep in this boat, and a squall came down on the lake. Now this is another element of the story that maybe because we're reading it with our lens, we think is like uncommon or unique. It would not have been uncommon or unique on the Sea of Galilee for a squall to come upon them when they are on the boat. In fact, many Israelites were terrified to get on the water because so many storms happened on the Sea of Galilee. And it's because of like what meteorologist Todd Jacobian said just a moment ago on Channel 4. The Sea of Galilee has the perfect conditions for squalls to happen over and over and over again. It sits about 70 feet below this particular ridge here. 
meaning that the winds will often come down, swoop down across the water, and then create a storm-like condition. I'm telling you this because this happened all the time on the Sea of Galilee. Even today, storms are very common on this particular body of water. But on this, on this day, he falls asleep, squall came, so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. Now, I do think that Luke is emphasizing the severity of this particular storm. But what I'm trying to showcase is that this was not an uncommon thing to happen on this body of water. But again, Luke is pointing out that this is a, a particularly bad storm. And so what happens next is in verse 24. The disciples went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. Now, I, I like to stop for just a little bit and point out, again, who these characters in this story are. We have Jesus, obviously, and we also have the disciples. But the background of the disciples is very important too, because these are fishermen. Several of them are fishermen who have been and were raised on a body of water. This was what their dads did, what their grandparents did. Like, that is the culture and the lifestyle that they lived in, was on the water. So I'm saying that to show you that maybe this storm was maybe a little more severe than they were used to or prepared for. And so the disciples went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. I don't think that Luke intended for this to be like a humorous element or even an annoyance, uh, annoying part of the story. But have you ever been around those people who like when things are going bad, when maybe there is a storm, Maybe you're on a plane and there's a lot of turbulence and that person is just watching their movie like we're not all about to die. Like those are the worst kind of people, right? When you're afraid and then no one else is. I've got a person like that in my life and it is my five-year-old daughter, Isla. Isla is not afraid of anything. It is the most annoying thing about my precious daughter is that she is not afraid of heights She's not afraid of bugs. She's not afraid of, like, I mean, there's, there's maybe one or two things that I can even think of that she might be afraid of. But where she pushed the envelope for me recently was when we went to California and went to uh, California Adventure. This looks, just as a picture, like a fun little uh, Ferris wheel. You got Mickey Mouse, his big face right there. But if you, if you can look at kind of some of the details, and I'll zoom in in just a moment, this isn't your run-of-the-mill Ferris wheel. Because if we zoom in, uh, there's two different ones. They're called the, the normal ones and the swinging ones. Now, I, I can't do heights. My knees get weak. I, I don't like them. Normally, Whitney has to ride these rides with the kids. But she had already ridden a ride that had made Whitney sick, so then I was called up as tribute for this one. Now, I, I talked them out of getting into this one that swings, but I think Miles has a quick clip of what it looks like in action. So, yeah. Some of you, your knees are getting weak, right? It's awful. That's all the video, Miles. So you can see just a little bit of how those particular ones will swing as the, the thing moves. And you can also, if you're in your, in your uh, whatever they're called, capsule, I guess. Um, that's probably not what they're called, is it? Um, anyway. I don't know. Anyone help? No. But, but the, the point of it is, is you can actually swing them. So, like, they swing on their own. But if you're moving inside of the cart, you can actually like intensify the swinging. This is awful. This should not be allowed, especially at Disneyland. But you, I say this to say that the disciples, they go to Jesus and they are afraid. And they go to him and say, Master, we are going to drown. 
And there is probably a little bit of them that's like, hey, are you not worried about this? Like, these winds are terrible. There's water that is swamping the boat. Like, we are now, getting, the water's coming into the boat. What are we going to do? And so they asked Jesus, and he says he got up, and he rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided, and all was calm. Oh, pause there before we get to verse 25. But the word that Luke uses, that Jesus uses, where uh, that he rebuked it, is the same word that's used in Luke chapter 4 to exercise a demon. So Luke is clearly making some connections here that Jesus has power over like uh, human diseases, human demons, stuff like that. Like he has those powers, but he's also connecting it to nature. And so we're, we're getting this extended version of who Jesus is right in front of them by the language that Luke is using. So again, that word rebuke, we see that also in Luke chapter 4. But he got up and he rebuked the wind and the raging waters and the storm subsided. There are a lot of pictures and windows in Scripture where I wish that we had a video. Because as I was studying this particular text, I kept thinking about what was Jesus like when he woke up. I assume that Jesus was very tired, where he would fall asleep on this boat. But I, I don't think that Jesus woke up and like did this miracle like groggy. You know, he's like he's wiping his eyes because he's been asleep. I don't see that. And I don't think that the disciples saw that, and I don't think that this miracle works if he, he does it kind of where he's tired and exhausted. But he gets up, he rebukes the wind and the raging waters, the storm subsided, and all was calm. Now, it's important for us to think about what it would have felt like to be a disciple on that boat. It's easy for us to look at the storm and focus on the storm and not think about the individuals that are actually in the story. Because one verse earlier, they wake up Jesus and they are terrified. Can't see that many more miles. Um, they wake up Jesus and they are terrified. They believe that death is right in front of them. There is no way that they are going to get to the other side. And now in this moment, Jesus gets up, he rebukes the storm, and it's smooth sailing again. It's really kind of hard to wrap your head around that. To think that like there's no way out of it to now all of a sudden we're back to smooth sailing. And so Jesus asks them this question. He says, where is your faith? I think there's a better way to, to maybe phrase that particular question is, why is your faith not in action? For all intensive purposes, the disciples are the closest individuals to Jesus. They have spent the most time with Jesus. They have heard the most sermons, the most teachings. They have, uh, they have been around these miracles and these healings, chapter after chapter. They are filled with different examples that show who Jesus is. And in this moment, they think that they're going to die. Jesus calms the storm, and he says, where is your faith? It's here, I, I want to pause just a moment and give them a little bit of grace. It's easy to knock the disciples and be like, oh, if I was in the boat, I would have been like, we're fine, guys. Jesus is here. He's asleep, though. He's here. We wouldn't have done that. We would have been just like the disciples saying, what is going on? Like, Master, we're going to drown. And so it's easy to kind of knock them, but I want you to see what they do when the storm happens. When they are as afraid as I think we see them in this passage, is they turn to Jesus. Was this their last resort? Like, did they try to paddle out? We don't know. 
The only picture that Luke gives us is when the storm gets so severe that they don't know how they're going to get out, that they think that they're going to die, the first thing they do is they turn to Jesus. That's here where I kind of want to make the argument that this story, this miracle, may not just be about storms. It may be about the storms that we have in our lives. Maybe those with relationships and people. Those seasons where we can't figure out why everything is going bad. Why every relationship, maybe it feels toxic or it's just tiring. It's, just, it's too much. I think that's like the deeper rooted message in the story. Is when the storms hit, where do you turn? You try to fix all the problems on your own. Say, I got this, I don't need anybody's help. I I do that way too much. Do you ignore the storms? Even worse, there's there's wind, there's waves, there's thunder, there's lightning, and you're like, it's all fine. I'm good, nothing to see here, it's all good. But disciples, the first thing that they do is they turn to Jesus. I think it's an amazing and powerful message that we see right here in this story. They don't try to do it on their own, but they turn to Jesus. Now, the, the next line of this is in verse 25. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. I think this is one of those moments where the disciples start to see maybe the tip of the iceberg. We're in this, this terrifying moment of their lives where they think that they are going to drown. Jesus saves them in this amazing way. I think that when when Luke identifies this as fear and amazement, that's the only way that you can describe what they have just experienced. But the fear and the amazement isn't talking about the storm. It's what they see in Jesus. It's one of those that reverent fear of this individual is powerful. This individual can expel demons. He can heal what is broken. He can restore hands. And now he can calm the storms in our lives. So when Luke writes that it's fear and amazement, that's what he's talking about. And that that question that they say, who is this? Again, they have been with Jesus for a long time at this point. They've traveled with him. They've visited people with him. They've witnessed these things. And they're still pondering the wonder and amazement of Jesus. You can feel the power in this text as these individuals are starting to maybe just a little bit grasp who Jesus is and what Jesus can do in this world. But I don't want to leave you there because we've talked a lot about storms. And I don't know everything that's going on in your lives. Maybe you've got storms that you're going through right now. Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's in relationships. Maybe it's just life. You just feel like the waves won't stop. But there's a thing about storms that that I think we we often get consumed with this idea of, are they ever going to end? Like that's to me is the scariest part of a storm, is what does the ending look like? When will the winds calm down? When will the waves subside? When will we be back to smooth sailing? When will we see sunshine again? A part of the story that, that I haven't heard preached a lot is the story continues. Luke 8.26 says they sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across from the Lake of Galilee. I include this passage that is separate from the story that we just looked at to show you that after the storm, the story continues on. 
There are more healings. There are more celebrations. There are more trials and tribulations that they are going to face. But their story continues beyond the storm. Sometimes when we are right in the middle of those dark seasons, those storms in our lives, we can't see the other side. But there's a beautiful message in this story is that Jesus, if you turn to Jesus, if you trust that Jesus can take a hold of your life and make it better, then you can get to the other side. Friends, storms are always going to happen in our lives. There are always going to be conditions where maybe we we don't get along with people, we don't agree with people, we have different relationship problems, work problems. You will always have storms. But what changes is how you respond to them. When you make messes in your life, do you try to fix it on your own, or do you try to ignore it, or do you turn to Jesus? I think the clear miracle in this story is the calming of the waters. But the message is a call and and a reminder that when things get bad, when the waters get rough, when we get scared when we're on the water, we got to turn to Jesus. Because when we trust in Christ, we give our lives and our focuses to Jesus, and we give all of the broken parts of who we are and maybe the, the messes that we have caused. When we do that, Jesus can calm those seasons. He can calm those storms. Let's stand and sing together.